Yes, sir. Thank you, Daryl and Tina. It's so good hearing worship. Uh, that's the, the joy of, of congregational worship is hearing each other singing, and so it's such a good thing. This morning we're going to be in Haggai, and that is not a Scottish delicacy. That is a book, a minor prophet in the Old Testament. So we finished First Peter last week. And just a friendly reminder, we can, uh, you can go online at any point you want on our church's website, and all of the sermons are recorded unless we've had technical difficulties. And we have West Text Connect, so there are some technical difficulties. But so far, I've preached Luke, Lamentations, Philippians, Esther, Titus, Genesis, and 1 Peter. So you can go back if you have questions on any of those. They're all available to you. Haggai, if you're having trouble finding it, is in the Old Testament. It goes Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew. It's there towards the end of all the Old Testament books. It's the second shortest book in the Old Testament. Haggai's a prophet. He's in the minor prophets section. And so if you memorize the books of the Bible and you go, all right, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, and then something Aya, something Aya, uh, hesitations is in there somewhere. It's in that section, the minor prophets, that you kind of struggle, or at least I struggle to memorize. This is where Haggai's located at. And he's called a minor prophet not because his message is minor, but because his book is short. He's the tenth of the twelve, and in the Jewish canon, all twelve were written on one scroll. And so to understand the prophets when we walk through Scripture, right? this is where in, in, when I'm reading the Bible through in a, a year or however long it's taken me to read through it, it's always the prophets where I struggle the most. I can get through Leviticus, I can get through Numbers, I can get through Deuteronomy. It's when I hit the prophets and they start naming off these kings and naming off all these empires and naming off all these prophets with names I don't understand. That's where I struggle. And there's really three things we have to understand before we can get like the grasp what the prophets are saying to us. We have to understand the biblical context of when they prophesy, where they're prophesying, why they're prophesying. We have to understand the historical context of what's going, because so much of what they say is about these kingdoms that are coming in and out, especially with the exile. And lastly, we have to understand what biblical prophecy is and what biblical prophecy isn't. So the biblical and historical context. The Bible is one story. It's telling one story of how God's redeeming his people and bringing them to him. So you have creation, then we have the fall with Adam and Eve. We have the Israelites going to Egypt to escape famine under Joseph. And then we have God rescuing the Israelites from under uh, the oppressive rule of Pharaoh in Exodus. You have the conquests with Joshua. Then we have judges. Then you have the kings. You have Saul being the first king who looks like a king, but turns out he's not a good king. You have David who doesn't look like a king, but he turns out to be kind of the, the best king they had, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, his son Solomon, born to him in Bathsheba, if you know that story, is the next king after David. But it's this, this line, we, we, we call it the snake crusher line that's mentioned in Genesis 3 where God says to uh, Eve, one of your offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent. And we begin tracing this line through the Old Testament. So Solomon's carrying this messianic line, the snake crusher line. 
Solomon builds this temple that's beautiful and it's fantastic. And as we walk through Haggai, we're going to talk about the temple a good amount. But Solomon dies in 922 B.C., just before Vince was born. And when Solomon dies, there's some issues that take place within the kingdom, and it splits. And so you have Judah and Benjamin. Those two tribes form the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And then you have the other ten tribes that form the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And this is where the history gets hard because now you've got two kingdoms to keep track of and all of these prophets and some prophesy to the north and some prophesy to the south and some do both. It's just very difficult. And so for our purposes, uh, I'll just tell you the brief history of all these things. And the northern kingdom has predominantly bad kings kings that are wicked and evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so in 722, 200 years after Solomon died, the northern kingdom is conquered by Assyria and exiled. Old Testament history interests me because I like to compare it to how long the United States has been alive. So think about that. Just a tick under how long the United States has been a country is how long the northern kingdom lasts, and then they're exiled. The southern kingdom, Judah, does have some good kings. Josiah comes to mind, but there are a lot of kings that, that are not good that were wicked in the eyes of the Lord. And they, they had prophets. The northern kingdom had prophets. The southern kingdom had prophets. And so somewhere around 606, 605 B.C., Babylon comes and they exile some of the youngest and the best from Judah. They conquer. You'll probably know four of the men they take. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel. Another exile comes in 597 B.C. with a large amount of Jews taken. This is when Ezekiel was probably taken. And then in 586, 587, Babylon comes back and they sack everything in Jerusalem. They tear the temple down. They tear the walls down. Everything is crumbled and and everybody except for a few are left. They're taken to Babylon. Lamentations is written around this time. They're lamenting the loss of Jerusalem, the temple. And so for 70 years, Judah is in Babylon. However, in 539, the Persians defeat the Babylonians, Babylon falls. And when Babylon would conquer people, they they had this political idea of when we conquer people, we're going to take the youngest and the brightest, that's what they do to Daniel, and we're going to assimilate them into our culture. We're going to indoctrinate them, right? So if you know the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they they take them, they bring them into uh, Babylon, they give them some of the food from the king's table, the nicest food they could have. They offer them these trainings and all of these things in hopes that they'll assimilate into our culture, and then when they become in our culture, Babylon's better because we have better people from all around. They take you from your home, and they bring you to Babylon. So you, you worship the Babylonian gods. You do things the Babylonian way. They get new names. Uh, we see that in, in the scripture. This is why, if you know the story of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, when uh, throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace when they won't worship a chocolate bunny. Vegetales? No vegetales? When they won't worship the Babylonian gods, that's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get thrown into the fiery furnaces because they're refusing to assimilate to the Babylonian culture. And so at that point, wipe them out. However, the Persians, when they take over, have a very different system. Instead of sacking homes, destroying cities, destroying homelands, and then bringing you in with them and trying to assimilate you, what they would do is they would give you a little bit of religious freedom. Now, they would tax you, 
You would be paying taxes to the Persians to help fund those things, but they would rule over you, but they would let you live in your homeland, worship the gods that you grew up worshiping, doing all the things that you wanted to do. And so when the Persians take over in 539, in 538, Cyrus the ruler allows all the Jewish exiles to go back home. And so this first wave of Jewish exiles that comes home is around 50,000 people. And this is where, if you know the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, that they come into play. Ezra rediscovers the law. They, they read it, and the people weep. I mean, just straight reading the law of the Old Testament, and people are crying in the pews. Actually, they're standing. If you know the story of Nehemiah, where they feel a threat's coming, and so Nehemiah organizes the people, and God works a miracle so they can rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and to protect themselves. That's, all of that is taking place after this exile. However, we also know that not all of the Jewish people come back. Esther is taking place at this time and remains in exile, but in a a different place. And so you have the three post-exilic prophets, right? If you want to impress all your friends, just throw out the word post-exilic prophets. They won't listen. You'll sound smart. Boom. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. All three are prophesying to Judah after they've returned from exile. And Haggai and Zechariah are probably prophesying it at nearly the same time with Haggai just being slightly uh, um, earlier than Zechariah. So you have this first wave of, of Jewish exiles that come back to Jerusalem somewhere around uh, 538 B.C. and they immediately rebuild the altar and they make sacrifices. And then next, the people will start rebuilding the foundation of the temple. But then you have these enemies of, of Judah, these Samaritans, come through and they hear that Judah's rebuilding the temple. And so they came to offer help to the Jewish people. And the Jewish people, with it being the temple, being a sacred place, say, we don't want your help. And this offends the Samaritans. So they begin threatening those people that are trying to, the, the, the people in Judah. They appeal to Cyrus, and the construction on the temple is halted around three, uh, 537, 536, right? So come back in 538, build the altar, build the foundation for the temple, and then construction is halted a year, year and a half later. And this sounds, I know this can sound and feel like an information just dump. Here's why this is important. I want to read Ezra chapter 4, verses 24 through 5-2. Now the construction of God's house in Jerusalem stopped and there remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Idu, prophesied to the Jews who were in uh, Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, Zerubbabel, the son of Shittel, and Yeshua, uh, the son of Zadak, began to rebuild God's house in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. It's this point that Haggai enters the picture. The temple's been started but hasn't been finished. You're coming back into, you're refiguring out what this life looks like in Jerusalem after a 70-year exile. And so you enter into the picture this prophet named Haggai. And when we think about prophecy, I, I tend to conjure up images that are neither biblical nor helpful. I tend to think of somebody just standing up, spouting nonsense, saying, I have a word from the Lord, and then they say nonsense. Mainly it's about future political things or enemy nations, and it's meant to conjure up fear within us. It's meant to conjure up things that cause us to want to fight as opposed to trust in the Lord. 
Or nowadays, they don't stand up and yell. They'll just post it on the TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, MySpace, if that's your thing. And then they end up going viral because we have ears that love to be tickled. They envision themselves as the lone one following the Lord and everybody else isn't. Or I think of people who call themselves prophets so that they can build this platform and then if you say anything negative towards them, they say, you can't come against me because I'm a prophet. I'm the Lord's anointed. So they'll post videos of them preaching or or progressively over time you notice that they get in better, better shape as they get more and more popular. Right, Their thinning hairline suddenly becomes flush and full. They say spiritual-sounding things that are meant to go viral, but if you open your Bibles, it's just nonsense. None of that's biblical prophecy. Prophets in the Old Testament do two very clear things with their messages, and we need to understand this before we even look at Haggai. And, and sometimes in these two messages that they give, God will call them to do weird things. We, we can agree on that, right? Uh, they'll walk around naked, or they'll cook food over poop, or they'll be called to marry a prostitute and never divorce her no matter what happens. Those are odd and weird things that God calls prophets to do, but it's to make a point about these two things that the prophets are meant to prophesy. These messages have two points, and the points are it's a message of judgment and it's a message of hope. And the judgment and the hope is always built on the covenant that God was made with his people. So, with the messages of judgments, the prophets always warn, if you disobey God's laws, you will be judged. That's what the prophets are largely saying when they write things. God reminds them of this message, you're doing wrong, you're going to be judged, you need to repent, and, or you will be judged by the Lord. And then when the judgment happens, the prophets tend to explain you disobeyed this way in God's covenant. That's why you've been judged. So, so imagine if you're a parent, uh, or imagine you're, you're, uh, you're a child, and your parents get you brand new tennis shoes. There's some sweet white New Balances with a navy in on it. The coolest shoe you could ever get. I have those shoes, and my wife hates them. That's why I bring them up, but they're super cool. So your parents hand you the shoes and they say, listen, you need to take care of these shoes. Don't wear them down unnecessarily. They don't need to get torn up. We need these shoes to last. And then for the one day of the year for us when it rains, your parents remind you, do not tear those shoes up unnecessarily. If you go out and get them muddy and mess them up, you're going to get in trouble. You will be punished. But then you're outside and you see it. It's the perfect opportunity. Your sibling is walking right next to this massive, deep, muddy puddle. And you know that if you jump right in the middle of it as hard as you can, you will shower all of them, cover them in this dirt and this mud. There'll be worms everywhere. It'll be so funny. So without much more thinking, because we're children in this scenario, you jump in, you stomp as hard as you can into the puddle, you shower your sibling with it, they're so upset, they turn red, you can't tell because they're covered in mud, and they tackle you in the mud puddle, and you're sitting there wrestling, you know, laughing really hard, but having a good old time, when all of a sudden you hear the voice of your parent, what are you doing? You know, oh, I broke the rule of the New Balance shoes. So you duck your head, you do the walk of shame back into the house as slow as you can. By the time you get there, your parents have the water hose rigged up and ready to go. You better believe they didn't take off the pressure washer handle. They want to scrub some of that disobedience off. 
And so you go inside, after you've been scrubbed off, you change clothes, you get your punishment, whatever that looks like. And while you're getting your punishment, your parents explain to you why you're being punished. They hold up the ruined shoes. We needed them to last. You got them muddy and all torn up because you didn't obey. You disobeyed. This is why you're facing judgment. That's what the prophets are doing. There's clear laws written into the covenant, especially the Mosaic covenant with Moses. So the message of judgment that the prophets get is is this message of you need to obey God's word or things won't work out for you like you think they will. It's the conditional aspect of the covenant. Obey my law or you'll be punished. And when you disobey God, you lose God's blessing. You lose everything. However, the prophets don't end there. They end with hope. After the judgment, God is going to honor the unconditional aspect of the covenant, which he gave to Abraham. If you remember the story of Abraham, God says, I'm going to make you more numerous, like your, your offspring's going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky, the grains of sand on the, the sea. I'm going to give you this land, and then you're going to be a blessed to be a blessing. It's this, like you, you're blessed not to hold it and hoard it to yourself. You're blessed to be a blessing for other people. And so it comes time to confirm this covenant, and God has Abraham slaughter an animal. He puts it on both sides, then you walk between the animal as a way of signifying what it, we're going to make this promise, we're going to make this covenant, this commitment with one another and if one of us disobeys the covenant what happens to the animal is going to happen to us except God makes Abraham fall asleep and God's the only one who passes between the animals. It's God saying, I'm going to keep my covenant even when you disobey. That I'm going to make a way for you. The prophets warn, they remind, they explain the judgment, and then they offer a hope. And you can read the prophets, and you can see things like there's going to be a new exodus. There's going to be a new Passover lamb. There's going to be a new temple, a new covenant, a new king. See, what they're showing us is God's judgment is discipline. It's not disownment. That it's meant to correct us and bring us closer to the Lord not push us away and cast us off. See, the prophets aren't just spouting random things about the future and what China's going to do. Hoping to kind of scare people into the presence of God. They're issuing words from God based on his covenantal relationship with them, messages of judgment and messages of hope that go together and ultimately are fulfilled on the cross. Where God judges sin The wrath of God is appeased in Jesus Christ and the mercy and the grace and the hope of God is given to us. So we understand the biblical context, right? This is right after the exile. We understand the historical context. Babylon is done with. It's over. The Persians have taken over. Uh, Cyrus has has sent the the Jewish people over. There's this 50,000 Jews that initially get there. There's probably some more that have come by by this time. But there's these hostile neighbors, the Samaritans, that are keeping the temple from being fully rebuilt. The foundation's there, but as far as the rest of it being built, it's not. And then we understand biblical prophecy that it's these messages of judgment and it's these messages of Hope mainly based on past or present events. There's a few future ones, but, but mainly past or present. Now we're ready for Haggai. So let's read Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. 
In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shittel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, These people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. It is time for you yourselves to live in paneled houses while, the house li- while this house lies in ruins. Now the Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. You've planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but you never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but you never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with hole, a hole in it. The Lord of armies says, Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down the lumber, and build the house. And I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expect much, but then it amounted to little. And when you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops, and I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills and the grain, the new wine, fresh oil, whatever the ground yields, on man and animal, and on all that your hand produces. Let's pray. Father, I know this is a hard one for us. There's so much introduction to get into Haggai and to understand the context with which you are writing which you're telling us this message. But I pray that you would give us grace now as we walk through these passages quickly. That you would clearly show us what your word says. God, that we wouldn't take this to be some legalistic do this and you get that and don't do this and you don't get that, but rather understand, Father, that what you're doing is you're aiming for our hearts. When our hearts change, our actions change too. Help us to think carefully about our ways. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Haggai, let's read chapter 1. We're going to do verses 1 and 2, and then we'll walk through this like we we typically do. Uh, In the second year of King Darius, in the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shittel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, These people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. I want to pause there. Haggai, when he's writing his prophecies, in in the book there's, there's four sermons that Haggai preaches. And at the beginning of each one, he gives us the exact day and year and month when he preaches them. So this one comes in the second year of Darius. This is the new Persian ruler, not Cyrus. In the first day of the sixth month. So this would have been August 28, uh, 520 B.C. What's important about that date for us now is to understand that's harvest season. The round balers are rolling in the field. And it's given to us by Haggai. That's who the prophet is. That's who God's speaking through the prophet Haggai. And not much is known about this man. He's mentioned in Scripture a, a few places, but there's nothing really given to us about his background. He he probably prophesies when he was at least in his seventies. Because when we get to Haggai chapter two, what you'll see is he talks about the temple, like the old temple, as if he was there. Which means he's an old man at this point. 
His name means festival or procession. So he was probably born on one of the, the Jewish festivals. And that's really all we know about this prophet Haggai. But Haggai writes this, this message. He pre- preaches this, this, he prophesies, and he specifically does so to two men in the first one, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel is the son of Shetel. Shetel was the son of King Jehoiachin, the king of Israel, when Babylon came and exiled them. So, this is important. Zerubbabel's carrying the line of the snake crusher, the Davidic line, the Messianic line, goes through Zerubbabel. And we see that he's the governor of Judah. He's not king because they're under the Persian government. He probably was appointed by one of the Persian kings to kind of be the, the pseudo-governor of Judah to kind of run things under their umbrella. We, then we see Joshua, who's the son of Jehozadak. He's the descendant of Levi, which means Levi's are the priestly tribe, that they can offer sacrifices. And we know that Joshua's dad was one of the captives taken in 587 to Babylon. So, so what Haggai's doing is he's making sure that the two people that were told this is prophesying to immediately points out to us that God didn't forget his people in the exile. That the covenant continues on. The Davidic line stays strong through the story. They've 70 years off in exile, but God didn't forget who David's offspring were. God didn't forget who the Levite tribe was. And then God quotes the people, which is interesting, isn't it? God says, they say it's, time for the, it's not time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. This is talking about the temple. See, because we know the date is 520, we know that it's been about 20 years since they laid the foundation of the temple, and then 20 years where they've done nothing else to it. They're waiting for their situation to change before they begin diving into rebuilding this temple. That's the setting of Haggai. He's writing to these people who are tired and broken and worried and apathetic and unmotivated and they're living in the shadows of past glory, longing for life to get better with real no motivation to make life better for themselves. Let's look at what happens in verse 3. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. It is time for, uh, for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while, the house, while this house lies in ruin. Now the Lord of the army says this. Think carefully about your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but have never been satisfied. You drink but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes but you never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. So the word of the Lord comes to Haggai. That's the Old Testament prophetic formula. The word of the Lord and then the prophet would prophesy what God said. What he says is, is the people say it's not time to rebuild the temple, of God, uh, the temple, God's house, but that's where God dwelt among his people. And at the same time they say it's not time to rebuild the temple, and they're going to bring up all of these excuses like we don't have the funds, we don't have the energy, and there's all these enemies that are abounding, and we're under Syria or Persia. At the same time, they somehow manage to find the things to get their houses ready to live in. See, the, the CSB says paneled, and he's probably not talking about houses with fake wood, walls, orange shag carpet, popcorn ceilings decorated to a T with tiny figurines and trinkets and a cat clock here and clown posters there. 
That was my idea of what a house in the 70s looked like with paneling, but I don't, maybe I'm wrong. It's referring to a house with a roof, a habitable house. It's not saying that their houses had all the nicest things and had been ornately decorated and finished, but it is saying, he's saying that your houses are, are livable. You, I don't know much about construction, but I know a roof is one of the last things that you do. And so God's saying, you can live in your houses. You've made sure your houses are livable, but my house is still lying in ruins with no real direction on when it's going to be fixed. See, the temple was more than a building. It's where God dwelt among his people, but these people have become so content living in completed houses without God living amongst them. In fact, God tells them, like he says, think carefully about your ways. He's saying, think about what's most important, right? You planted a whole lot of seeds in the ground, but you only harvested a little bit. And, and you have food to eat, but you don't have enough for a feast. And you have enough drinks to drink, but you don't have enough for a party. And you have clothes to wear, but you don't have enough to be comfortably warm. And you have money, and you put your money in your wallets and your purses, but there's like a hole in those bags because the funds just kind of drain out of them. So what we'll learn is there's a drought going on in, in the land when Haggai's writing this, and Persia is upping taxes, and inflation has hit, and is skyrocketing. Does it sound familiar? So they have gold and they have some silver, but it's worth less today than it was worth yesterday, and tomorrow it's going to be worth less than it was today. So essentially, Haggai is saying, why are you valuing your own houses more than the Lord's? God is the provider. He has given you enough. Not excess, but enough. Times are going to be difficult and times are going to be hard and you're going to have to pinch pennies and you're going to have to buy generic ketchup for a while. But none of that is an excuse to allow God's house to lie in ruins while you build yours up. God will provide for his people, so get going. What what Haggai is saying is, is think carefully about your ways, check what you value most. This is so true for us. If you'll show me your calendar, if you'll show me your bank statement, if you'll show me your social media, I can tell you what you really value. And it seems like some of us might be waiting for the Lord to change some things in our life, to change some circumstances in our life, for our kids to get to a different stage, or for our careers to hit a different point, or for our spouse to support us better or support us less, or whatever it is. You're, you're waiting, hoping, just kind of twiddling your thumbs, waiting for God to do something when the Lord is saying, go do something, I'll provide what you need. We don't come to God together and perfect. In fact, Christ comes to us when we're broken. And it's when we're broken, and it's when we're humble, and it's when we're needy that the gospel saturates us. Jesus doesn't come as a doctor to heal the healthy. He comes as a doctor to heal the sick. So we come to Jesus needy and desperate. That's the best place for us to be. Because those are who Jesus saves. So think carefully about what's most important. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build 
the house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. And when you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, because my house still lies in ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew in the land its crops. And I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills and on the grain and new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields on man and animal and on all that your hands produce. So we see, again, God tells Haggai, tell these people to think carefully. And he says, go get the stuff you need to build the temple. Stop waiting for the Home Depot truck just to show up and drop off the lumber. Build the temple and God will be pleased and God will be glorified. So Haggai begins explaining these things to these people. He says, you, you, you uh, brought in your harvest and then I, God, ruined it. Why? We don't think that way, do we? If, if, if our harvest is ruined, we never think, well, God ruined it for us. We always think it's somebody else. You expected it to produce much, but it didn't. Why? Clearly, God answers it, because my house lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. He's saying, you act like you don't have enough to fix the temple, but somehow you found enough to get your houses built and to put a roof on them. Yes, times are hard. Yes, there's inflation. Yes, there's a drought. All of these things, though, are external. And what God is doing is he's looking at the people's heart and he's saying, all of those are external things, but I know the real issue that's going on. And the real issue is within your heart and the real issue is selfishness. You care more about yourself than you care about others and you care about the Lord. And so because of that disobedience, because of that hardness of heart, And, and, and that's something only the Lord would know, right? We could look at their circumstance and say, this makes a whole lot of sense on paper why they're doing. Only God is going to know the heart. God says, but because of this, that's why there's no dew in the morning. That's why the land doesn't produce crops. The irony that Haggai is saying is the sky and the earth will obey God while the creatures created in the image of God won't. He's telling them, your financial hardships, your livelihood, everything that you're worried about is brought about because you forgot who's really in control. Now this is not Haggai offering up some prosperity gospel version of of Christianity or or, uh, Judaism where if you build the temple, uh, then you can build it the right way, then God's just this cosmic vending machine for you where if you pray the right prayer, say the right thing, donate the right amount of money, do whatever, then you can push whatever buttons and get God to give you whatever you want to come out of it. That's not what Haggai's saying at all. What Haggai is saying is all of these things have been sent to you to draw you closer to the Lord. He's being used by God to say, I know your heart. I know the real reasons you haven't built the temple. And it's not inflation, and it's not because of the enemies that are around, and it's not because of the bad harvests. In fact, I've sent those things to draw you closer to me. And the truth of our lives, if we want to be honest with ourselves, is oftentimes when we're the furthest from the Lord is when our circumstances are the best. When life goes the way it wants to go, when things are piling up in a way that we feel safe and we feel secure, we often look up and we find ourselves far from the Lord. 
because we can depend on other things and not Christ. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread and not our weekly bread. Not our monthly bread. That it's bread that we eat today and then if we don't get the bread tomorrow, then we're starving. It's a prayer that's meant to be prayed over and over and over again daily. This is why in the wilderness God provided manna for the Israelites and they were only commanded to pick up what they needed for that day. So they had what they needed for the day and then tomorrow they were dependent on God. They had to trust that God was going to provide for them again. And you can see how over time if the Lord provides for you day in and day out and day in and day out and you're trusting God for your most basic needs then day in and day out, year after year, your heart would begin to trust the Lord more and more and more. Haggai's saying, it's time to finish what you started 20 years ago. Build the temple. Value God's presence. Trust God's sovereignty to provide. Think carefully about who's really in control of the world. It's kind of an odd place for us to to leave the text, but this is where we're going to leave it for this morning. And you can read and you can see how the Jewish people respond, and we'll we'll cover it next week. But right now we're left with the question, will they obey or will they disobey? And see, this command is for us too. It's so easy 2,000 years after the cross for us to get complacent. It's so easy for us for with our lips to say, I'm ready to grow in you, Jesus. I'm ready to be a Christian, but to live passive and lackadaisical lives from Sunday to Saturday. And then when Sunday morning rolls back around, we can put on our nice clothes, we can come, we can sit in the pews, we can feel good, and then we can leave and do the same thing. God demands so much more from us than lip service. He's not calling his people to be inactive. And he's not calling his people to be passive. He's calling his people to actively trust in him Monday through Friday too. So what this looks like then is is our external actions, right? What Haggai's really getting down to, what we do starts with what we believe and what we value in our heart. Think carefully about your ways, is what Haggai says. Think carefully about your heart. If your heart longs to please God, you will find ways to do so. If your heart has been captivated by the good news of Jesus Christ, that I am a sinner and that I have nothing more and nothing less to lean into than the grace of Jesus Christ, then you will live that out. You don't sit here hoping that there's some crystal clear sign that God's going to tell you what he wants you to do. He wants you to rebuild the temple. What is the temple now? Your very heart. We're told in the New Testament that when we're saved, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us like God dwelt in the temple. So this isn't a physical location. This is about God's presence in you. But let's not forget, Haggai's not saying this to one person. He's saying this to a gathered group of people. God's people. To believers. This isn't to unbelievers. This is to believers that he's saying this to.
it's not enough to say, well, I've got my life together, but so-and-so doesn't have their life together. And they need to get their act. Like, I serve on all the committees. I teach in all the class. I do all the servings. I, I make the ice cream. I bring the dessert. I do all of those things. So-and-so else needs to step up. My time's almost done. That's not biblical. We're one body. We've covenanted together if you're a member, which means we're in this thing together. For better or worse. I can tell you when someone doesn't like something in our church or they feel separated from the body by the language that we'll use. It happens every now and then, and it sounds like this. What are y'all playing to do? If you're a member of the church, this is not a y'all and a me or y'all and this is an us. What are we planning to do here? Why did we make this decision? What is happening with us as a collective body? We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, but we're not saved to be alone. We're saved to plug into the body of Jesus Christ to a local church. So brothers and sisters, if you're saved by Jesus, if you've repented of your sin, if you've turned to Jesus in faith, you're not meant to be doing life alone. You're meant to have brothers and sisters who've covenanted with you and helped to disciple you that you're de- and are dependent on you to disciple them too. And they're going to drive you nuts at times. They're going to ruin their brand new shoes when they jump in a puddle and shower you with mud. And you're going to beat them up in the puddle and then you're both going to take your punishment together and you're going to grow in a relationship with one another. Because the same Savior you have saved the brothers and sisters who are sitting next to you in the pews. When you gain Christ as a Lord, you gain a family. Paul calls the church a body. If you're a member of the church, the body isn't complete when you're gone. You're important and you're valuable here. So Haggai begs us to ask the question, are we building our own houses or are we building a house for the Lord? So if you're a believer here, think carefully about your ways. Think carefully about your heart. Grow in Jesus and grow together in his church. Build up the body of Christ. Serve your brothers and sisters. Share the gospel with your words and your actions. Those two go hand in hand. Apologize quickly. And work towards church unity. Unbelievers who are here, turn to Jesus. The message of the prophets is still true. Disobey God, and there is judgment. We all have disobeyed God, none of us are perfect. But the message of hope is true, too. That we do have a new. Passover lamb who died for the sins of the world. We do have a new king who rules and reigns a kingdom that will will never end. We do have a new temple that God is creating in his people, not a physical place, but his people are going to be built up as his body, his church, his temple. That's where our hope is at. 
Our hope is not that we're good enough. Our hope is not that we're worthy enough because we're not good enough and we're not worthy enough, but we're also not hopeless. Our hope is wrapped up in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ and of Christ alone. And we're told in John that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So unbeliever, brother, sister, what is keeping you from salvation this morning? Think carefully about what is most important because that guides your life. Think carefully about who is really in control. Think carefully about your ways because your ways reveal your heart and your heart reveals what you worship. Who has your heart? My prayer is that it is Christ and Christ alone. And if so, praise God. And if not, I pray that you would repent, that you would turn to Jesus this morning and that we would rejoice in gaining a brother and sister in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus Christ, that you lived the life that we should have lived, that you died the death that we deserve, that you died in my place. God, I thank you so much that the good news, that the gospel is not about me doing the right things, getting my act together, being moral, being all of the things, God, that I fail at and that I can't do. But it's about you and your work and your grace and your mercy God I pray that the faith that we have this morning God would be placed in you that for the believers the faith would be strengthened and that we would grow in you more confident because of your word and for unbelievers God I pray that you would make them miserable this morning that they just couldn't settle and that you'd help them to see that the gospel is hope that the gospel is life. God, I thank you for Jesus and for the finished work of the cross. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you'll